We are one church in three locations, campuses in Santa Barbara, Carpinteria, and Ventura, and our Ventura campus will be joining us for this sermon. Let's let them know how much we love them. Big love. Come on. Okay, now let's open up to the book of Revelation, chapter 12 this week. Continuing in our study, the book of Revelation in chapter 12, we're over the hump. We're more than halfway through the book now. We've been setting an astounding pace in a chapter a week. Uh, When we get to the last few chapters, 19 through 22, we're going to slow it down a bit. We're going to slow it down a bit and just kind of spend the summer on those last few chapters because it's about the renewal of all things. It's about the final judgment. It's about Satan being permanently dealt with. And it's about a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem and it's glorious. So we're just going to slow down the pace a bit, downshift this summer and spend the summer there with that material. But for now, we are still covering uh, a chapter a week. And this week we are in Revelation chapter 12. And it's, it's crazy stuff in this chapter. I know I said that last week. I guess it's a book of Revelation. Pretty much every chapter is crazy stuff. But uh, this one is interesting. The title of this message is, The Dragon Has Been Defeated, which is good news. There is good news in this chapter. The dragon has been defeated. So let's start reading in Revelation chapter 12. We're just going to read the whole chapter. It's pretty long, 17 verses. We'll have to tune in and pay attention, and then we'll cover the material. So John is still receiving this vision now, continuation from last week. And it says in Revelation 12.1, And then a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon and the dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And the two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. And the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Even while we realize that, wow, it's, there's a lot there. There's a, a lot that seems difficult to understand and a lot, even when we do understand, that is daunting, but it is nonetheless your word. It's your true word. It's your wonderful word. It's the bread of life to us. Our lives are meant to be nourished on the truth of your word. So help us this morning to discern the nourishing good truth that is here. Help us by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. You said the Holy Spirit would teach us all things concerning you and your word. So teach us, Spirit, and give us ears to hear. Help us bring our lives in submission to the word of God and its truth. Help us to put ourselves under it that we might obey it, heed it, and be radically, profoundly, wonderfully affected by the truth in it. There's great encouragement for us in this strange text today. Help us discern that. Please help me now, Lord, as I teach and preach. I ask that I would sense your presence and your joy as I teach and preach by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The dragon has been defeated. How many of you have read the book, The Hobbit? Raise your hand if you've read The Hobbit. Wait, that's it? This is one of the greatest pieces of anything ever in the history of the world. How many of you have seen the movie? I mean, more of you have seen the movie. Cheesh, quit seeing movies, start reading books. The book is always better. Can I get a witness? The book is always better. And this is definitely the case with The Hobbit. I'm not a fiction fan. I very, very seldom read fiction. In fact, I don't think I could name three fiction books that I've read in my whole life. I'm kind of a nerdy guy. I read theology and history and stuff like that. But Daisy, my daughter, wanted me to read her The Hobbit a few years ago, and so I obliged. And I did every single voice and character in the book for her. I'm sure you would all would have loved to have seen that. (laughs) Had a great time reading The Hobbit. Love that story Loved that book. You'll remember that the main antagonist in the book is a big dragon. His name is Smog. He's a main antagonist, and he had a history in the book of tormenting people. He had a long history before the context of the book came into play. And then, of course, he had taken over that dwelling place of the dwarves, which I, I, I can't remember right now. And he had ruined their lives, and he was tormenting other people. And there was present rule and reign. He was ruling over that place and that treasure and he caused people to be displaced and tormented and he was tormenting the people that lived on the lake and there was a future threat of him if he should awaken from his lair and come forth and bring his wrath. And one day he did. He came out of that city of the dwarves where he was and he came down to the city where the men lived on the lake and he unleashed his wrath and it seemed like all was going to be lost. He was literally a fire-breathing dragon and he's blowing on the city and people are running and perishing and along comes the hero who of course was a bow hunter. His name was Bard and Bard pulls back his bow and thoom, with a special arrow. Thoom in a certain spot where Smaug was missing a plate and against all odds, the big red dragon was defeated. And it's an awesome story. It's a wonderful story when you read it. And that is the story that's in the text today. I wonder where J.R.R. Tolkien, whoever wrote it, I wonder where he got this. That is the story in the text today. There's a dragon with a history of torment and oppression, with a present rule and reign of a certain sort, with a future threat of wrath. And there's a hero, I wonder who he is, who comes on the scene. And ultimately, the dragon is defeated. And this was much needed news for John, who was receiving this vision and his original audience and for all of us. Because there was for John, who you'll remember was exiled on the island of Patmos. There was for his audience, who you remember were being persecuted, many of them put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. And there is for us now, and there will be in the future, difficult days. Quite honestly, times where 
It seems like evil is having its way. Seasons that seem as though they will never end. Sometimes it feels like it's only getting worse, that there is no end. And to add insult to injury, sometimes it feels like the suffering and the loss is senseless. It's meaningless. It seems like random wickedness carries the day and we wonder what's behind it. This chapter pulls back the veil and shows us what's behind the headlines of 2,000 years ago, of now and in the future. One commentator in summing up the content of the chapter says this, John is taken behind the scenes of history to learn the fundamental reason for the intense antagonism that is mounting against the church in the last days. To understand that the rising tide of persecution is simply the final death struggle of an already defeated foe will encourage believers to hold fast until the ordeal is over. That's the point of the text to encourage believers to hold fast until the ordeal is over. And there's ordeals on many fronts. There's the ordeal of history and how do we make sense of some of the atrocities that we see. There's the ordeal of the present in the macro sense, what's happening in the world scene and in our own lives and our relationships and our own hearts. And there's a future ordeal that we've been reading about in the book of Revelation. And the truth that the dragon has been defeated will encourage us to hold fast, to persevere, to stick with Jesus, to stand firm, to have some Holy Spirit tenacity until the ordeal is over because there is an end in sight. That's what's being communicated in this chapter, in this vision today. Now, admittedly, it's being communicated in an interesting and strange way. There's women giving birth and there's dragons and there's war and there's all these different things going on. So let's identify a few of the key players, namely the woman and the dragon and the child. It should be obvious to you by now, but let's ground it in some Old Testament scriptures so we could kind of bring out some of the richness of the vision. The woman is presented to us in the first two verses. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars, and she was with child. She cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. So there is this woman, and we we need to identify the woman because she figures prominently. She's the center of the dragon's attention, and the child that's going to come forth from her is the dragon's goal of destruction, and the dragon will later on re-engage her in a warlike manner. She's a central key first figure here in this vision. So we've got to identify the woman. And it's strange, you know, she's got these 12 stars on her head and she's clothed in the sun and there's a moon. And we, we, we don't get that. We read that and we're like, I don't know what that is. But any Jew who was familiar with their own scriptures would have read that and said, oh, I, I get what that is. Do you remember Jacob? Jacob and he had the 12 sons. Jacob, his name was later changed to Israel. You remember him from the book of Genesis. And his 12 sons, Joseph and all his brothers, became the 12 tribes of Israel. That was the beginning of the nation of Israel. Jacob, name changed to Israel by God. 12 tribes that came forth from him. This same language, imagery, was used to represent that group of people who were the progenitors, is that the right word? Whatever. The ancestors of Israel. Look here from Genesis. Soon Joseph had another dream. And again, he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream. He said, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down before me. Now, I won't go into the context of all that the dream is about. If you're familiar with Genesis, you're familiar with it. But the point is, he had a dream. It was representative of some things that would happen in his family. His family is a family that became Israel. His brothers were the brothers that became the 12 tribes. There's only 11 mentioned there because Joseph is having the dream. He would be the 12th. So if a Jew familiar with their scriptures would read this, they would say the sun and the moon, these 12 stars... This is a picture of Israel. And that's not hard to glean, even just if you read the chapter alone. This woman, I believe, is a picture of the nation of Israel. Next, we have the dragon who comes on the scene. Verse three, 
And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems, and his tail, his tail excuse me, swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. While the identity of this red dragon is pretty obvious and is given away in verse 9, verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. This dragon language is figurative language. It's evocative language. It's symbolic language. It gives us a little something to hold on to when we're thinking about the evil, the raw evil represented by Satan. And even the power and enormity, if you will, represented by Satan. He moved his tail and a third of the stars were swished away. This is just common Bible language to give us a picture of how nasty our foe really is. And God did this for Israel throughout the history, speaking of their enemies and speaking of Satan here from Isaiah. Look, the Lord is coming from heaven to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will no longer hide those who have been killed. They will be brought out for all to see. In that day, the Lord will take his terrible swift sword and punish Leviathan, monster imagery, the swiftly moving serpent, the coiling, writhing serpent, He will kill the dragon of the sea. God dealing with his enemies and the enemy of his people, representing Satan, the great enemy, right here. And it's told that this dragon has seven heads, ten horns, and a crown upon each head. So seven crowns. This is all Bible language. It's representative of some degree of ruling some degree of authority, headship. He's got seven of them. Crowns, some sort of kingship, ruling. Horns always speak of authority and power in the scripture. So Satan has some degree of authority and power and has throughout history, does in our present world, and will in a unique way in the future in the tribulation period, as we've already seen in a previous chapter. And this dragon is poised before the woman who is about to give birth. And his goal is to devour, to destroy the child. Whomever this child is, Satan wants it dead. Satan wants to destroy the child. So the child comes on the scene in verse five. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. You don't need a Bible teacher to tell you who that is. Who's that talking about? Jesus. The phrase rule the nations with a rod of iron kind of gives it away, right? Speaking about his return. And it would give it away to people who are familiar with the Old Testament. This was some common messianic language speaking about the coming of the Messiah and his future reign and judgment. We see it from Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2, excuse me. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus language, we're familiar with this. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now that's judgment language. Okay, that's talking about when Messiah comes, there will be some judgment for the nations. That is not governance language. Because part of our understanding is that when Jesus returns, he'll set up his kingdom and he will govern the earth, right? So this isn't talking about a form of governance that is heavy-handed and cruel. That's not Messiah. This is talking about the nature of judgment. The imagery is drawn from a shepherd who would have a rod or a staff. And if there were a predator coming after the sheep, if it were per se a big red dragon coming after the sheep, you would hope that the shepherd had a rod that was like iron. This is Jesus vanquishing the enemy in judgment, dealing with evil in judgment language that is before us here. But before that day that's alluded to, when Jesus rules the world, establishes kingdom, judges evil, we have the dragon attempting to destroy Jesus. That's the big picture here. 
Okay, that's the big picture. The dragon has declared war against the child. And the dragon is endeavoring to stop the child and whatever work he is going to do. We see this manifest when we read the Gospels. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Sometime later, Herod, the then king of the region, inquired about the child from the Magi, learned that the child was supposedly the promised Jewish Messiah, and so ordered that every child, every male child in Bethlehem under the age of two was slaughtered. Can you imagine the horror? Every male child in Bethlehem under the age of two was slaughtered. In an effort to eradicate this child spoken of here. Now, what the chapter is telling us is that that sort of thing, that particular thing and things like it, are not merely politic. It wasn't merely an insecure king. There's something behind the evil that's visible. There's something behind the political action. There's something behind the tyranny. There's something even more sinister. There's something deeper. There's something darker. It has to do with the dragon and his goal to destroy the child. We see it when Judas betrayed our Lord and the language in the gospels is, then Satan entered Judas and he went off to betray the Lord. This wasn't mere greed. There was something deeper. There was something darker. There was something standing behind the evil action of a greater evil. We see this when the crowds were crying out before Pilate who was trying Jesus, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. This was not mere mob rule. This was not an excited crowd at a big event calling for something sinister. There is something the chapter is teaching us deeper. It was more than mob rule. It was more than greed. It was more than politics. It is the big red dragon, Satan, endeavoring to kill the child. So then we're told in verse five that the child ascended to God and to his throne. We're told in essence, in a nutshell, in a sentence or a half a sentence, that the dragon did not succeed. He stood before the woman waiting to devour the child. One day the child will come and judge and rule with a rod of iron. But for now, we're told, the child ascended unto God and unto the throne. The dragon was thwarted. The dragon failed. We have there in verse 5 a profound condensing of the gospel story. Jesus died on the cross and certainly the dragon thought he had won at that point. When the final breath was exhaled and his spirit left him and he hung there dead on the cross between a couple of thieves, certainly Satan thought he had prevailed. But Jesus rose from the dead And then Jesus ascended unto heaven. And Jesus is seated in the heavenlies on the throne, ruling and reigning. And Jesus is coming again to confront evil and Satan and death ultimately and to establish his righteous rule in this world. What seemed to be the victory of the great red dragon was actually his undoing. You see... The chapter is telling us that there's something deeper than what we just read in the headlines, than what we experience in our own lives. There's a bigger picture. There's something more going on. There is a deeper evil. There is something that stands behind the politic, the greed, the mob rule. But there's one who is greater than them all, who will ultimately rule the child Jesus. What is being revealed here is the origin, nature, and true essence of the battle between good and evil that we see playing out in the world in all sorts of ways on all sorts of fronts. 
the nature, the origin, and the true essence of it. For in the beginning, God created everything. And it was good. And he created humanity. And it was very good. And then Satan tempted us to sin and evil. And we did. And it was bad. God called for himself a people through which he could reveal himself to the world as a loving God, as a faithful God, as a powerful God, through whom he could deliver to the world a savior who would ultimately defeat the dragon, Israel. And it was good. He called forth his people to show himself to the world. And the enemy came against her, Israel. We read about it in the Old Testament. We can read about it in modern history books and we can watch it on the news. And it is bad. And then God, because of love, draped himself in humanity, was born a virgin in Bethlehem and came in Christ Jesus. And it was good. And the dragon went into a rage, went into fury and did all that he could. Babies being killed, betrayal of friends, the cries of the crowd. It was bad. But then Jesus rose from the dead and it was done. Christ has won the victory. And all of that stuff that came before, all of the drama, all of the history, all the ins and outs are just the in time and space manifestation of those greater powers at war behind the scenes. And it's pictured for us here in the chapter in verses seven through nine. Here's a a picture of it in a macro sense where it says in verse seven, and there was war in heaven. Michael And his angels waging war with the dragon and the dragon and his angels wage war, but they were not strong enough and there is no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. There's sort of a macro picture of the subjugation of the enemy that he loses There was war in heaven and the enemy is lost. A macro picture, uh, uh, an allusion to the original casting out of the enemy from the heavenly realms. An allusion to the moment of the cross where the dragon thought he won, but it was his ultimate undoing. And a prophecy of the future where Satan will again, so to speak, strike the earth in a radical, profound way during the tribulation period. But the salient point of it all is there was war in heaven and the dragon lost. And the forces of good won. All of this has to do with the cross of Jesus Christ. So that we can rejoice in an evil world, in difficult days, with a sordid history, a challenging present, and a daunting future. We can rejoice in scriptures like this, Colossians. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, identified with his death on the cross, right? And with him you were raised to new life, resurrection, new life in Christ, because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all of our sins. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. Now look what happened. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers, speaking of the dragon and his dudes, He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. In the beginning, God created everything and he created humanity and it was good. Satan came along and tempted us and we fell. And since then, because God is a righteous and just God, he has kept a record of our sins. 
And so, because he's a horrible dude, has the dragon. The dragon has also kept a record. And the record in totality of our sins was nailed to the cross. So that God no longer holds it against us. And listen, watch this. Satan can no longer hold it over us. God does not hold it against us. It was nailed to the cross in the flesh of Christ. It's been canceled out, paid in full to Telestai. So that we are forgiven and Satan, who's called in the text, the accuser of the brethren, can no longer hold it over us. For when he says, oh yes, but she did this in the past and he did this yesterday and they're doing this today and he tries to accuse us before God. He says, I know of no such thing. It is under the blood of my son. It has been nailed to the cross, taken away, has moved as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea, pure, spotless bride is who you're talking about. And what that did was defang and declaw the dragon defang and declaw the dragon. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authority, shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The dragon has been defeated. And even more so, Hebrews tells us this. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood, speaking of the incarnation. For only as a human being could he die, speaking of his work on the cross. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Whether they were hobbits or men or elves or dwarves, all lived in fear of smog because smog seemed to have the power of death in his very breath. And so all of humanity has always lived in the greatest fear of death because what seems more final, what seems more powerful, what is more dark? There are moments where it seems as though nothing can stand in the face of death. And there are places in which it seems like death wins, but no. As a human being, Christ died. And by dying, he broke the power of the devil who had, past tense, the power of death. The dragon has been defeated. So that the book of Revelation opens in the first chapter, the 17th verse, with these words. And Jesus holds the keys to death in Hades. Satan's authority has been removed. He doesn't hold the keys. He doesn't have the power over death. Therefore, he cannot hold us in fear of our past, our present, or our future. Jesus has defeated the dragon. This is what's being told to us in the text. Now, there are some mitigating circumstances. We read this and we say, yes and amen, thank you, Jesus. But what about what the devil was doing with me yesterday? What about the beheadings of the 21 Christians? What about this atrocity? What about these things? What about the temptations? What about this darkness here? The enemy has been defeated, but the story is not over yet. What is revealed in the text is why God's people, Israel and the church, had been, were being in context, are now and will be in the future persecuted. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. When the dragon's plans were thwarted, right, to destroy the child, he turned his destructive attention toward Israel, God's people. And... Someone else, verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make the war with the rest of her offspring. Who might that be? It's obvious from the rest of the sentence. Who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, the church. Here's the truth about the world in which we live. Satan was shown to be powerless in getting to God 
in destroying Christ. And so he turned to what God loves most, his people. That's what the text reveals to us. We're not the ultimate target. Satan hates Jesus and God. His ultimate plan is to thwart the plans of Jesus. We become then the little targets. And we do, don't we? I mean, the Bible is explicit. There is spiritual warfare. We have an enemy. He's real. His ultimate plan is to destroy the plans of Jesus. But if he can destroy Jesus' plan for your life just a little bit, then he's gained a little bit. If he could complicate God's plan for Israel and the nations, if he could make a mess of the church, if he could this and that, if he could destroy a marriage, if he could rip off a kid, well, then he's made a little bit he would feel on Jesus. So we become his targets. Jesus said Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus said to Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. It wasn't Peter that Satan was so fixated on, it was Jesus. But the dragon is no match for the child. And this helps us make sense of our present world. There really is spiritual warfare happening. It helps us make sense of history. The persecution of the Christians that we read about here in this book from the first century There's something more behind it. It wasn't just random. The 21 Christians who were beheaded a few weeks ago, listen to me, brothers and sisters, that was not the mere clash of ideologies. That was not merely show for the media or political wrangling or a show of military prowess. There is a deeper evil behind it. There's a different war being waged. Helps us make sense of history. The Holocaust, that was not merely the effect of one deranged man in control of a nation. There's something deeper, darker behind that. Though it's not easy to confront, though it's not pretty to look at, it helps us make sense of history, some of the things that we see. It helps us make sense of this present world and some of the things that we experience. The key information given to us in, in chapter 12 is that because Satan has been defeated in the heavenly battle, he is now going to vent upon God's people on earth. That then expands our understanding of the tribulation period that's in view here. Because up until this point, we've seen that the tribulation period, this future time, has to do primarily with God's wrath poured out on an unrepentant world. And thus it has been so far. But that's not all it is. It is also Satan's wrath unleashed against God's people. That's what we see portrayed in this chapter. That's how God is endeavoring to help the audience make sense of the lives they're living and the things they're experiencing and the future. Tribulation period is God's wrath poured out on an unrepentant world, but it is also simultaneously Satan's wrath against God's people. No wonder it's going to be a chaotic, heart-wrenching, difficult time. But what we also see in the text is though there's much that we can't answer and much that we don't understand, we do see that Satan is on a leash. Verse 12. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Someone say good news. (laughs) Knowing that he has only a short time. It really helps sometimes to read the end of the book. And if we go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, we see the end of Satan's time. Revelation 20, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's good news. So that we like to say, 
The next time the accuser of the brethren, Satan, wants to remind you about your horrific past, you remind him about his horrific future. (laughs) He's only got a limited time. He's on a short leash. We wish he wasn't. We wish it was just done away with at the cross. But there's much that unfolds after the cross. But there is coming a day, another day, a final day where evil will really, truly, fully, completely be vanquished in this world and Satan thrown into the lake of fire. And in the meantime, though, again, there's much that we can't explain and much that doesn't make sense and much heartache and pain, and there is persecution and oppression and warfare against God's people, there is still God's protection. Verse 6, picture that for Israel. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she might be nourished for 1,260 days. Depending on how you interpret that, that either means that in the last half of the tribulation period, as we spoke of last week, that's three and a half years, 1,260 days, Israel is protected in some unique way by God while Satan is unleashing his wrath, while the dragon declares war on the woman. Or, as many interpreters see, the 1260 days is figurative for the whole period of history in which Israel is persecuted, warred against by the nations. Either way, the point is that God protects his people. And God has always done so. When it was Egypt that was looking to destroy Israel, we read this in Exodus. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Eagles' wings, that sounds familiar. Verse 14. And two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and a times and half a time. That's three and a half years. Time, one year, times, two years, half a time again. From the presence of the serpent. This is... Wonderful, wonderful language for Israel. They, they hear, wait, the wings. When else did God save us with wings? In the Exodus. We read about this in Deuteronomy, God's protection of his people. For the people of Israel belong to the Lord. Jacob is his special possession. He found them in a desert land in an empty howling wasteland. He surrounded them and watched over them. He guarded them as he would guard his own eyes, the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that rouses her chicks and hovers over her young, so he spread his wings to take them up and carry them safely on his pinions. God's care for his people. This is true for his people, Israel. This is true for his people, the church. God's care for his people. Even when life doesn't make sense, even when there will be some loss, casualties and difficulties, God cares for his people. And this chapter is telling us that the red dragon doesn't win and that the dragon's wrath is not ultimate and that the dragon does not have unlimited power. God actually limits the power of the dragon and God intervenes. Look at this from Exodus 15. The enemy boasted, I will chase them and catch, the, and catch up with them. I will plunder them and consume them. I'll flash my sword and my powerful hand will destroy them. Pharaoh chasing Israel. Now about God, but you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders. You raised your white right hand and the earth swallowed our enemies. With your unfailing love, you lead the people you have redeemed. In your might, you guide them to your sacred home. The earth swallowed our enemies. That's familiar language. Verse 15. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. This is wrath of the enemy language. That his wrath against God's people is like a flood in its destructive, consuming nature. And the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Everyone that reads the scriptures know, well, it's not about the earth doing anything. The earth doesn't have a mouth. That is figurative language for God rescuing his people. 
that when it seems as though the schemes of the enemy will overwhelm us and begin to rule us and to ruin us, God raises his right hand and the earth swallows our enemies. With your unfailing love, you lead the people you have redeemed. In your might, you will guide them to your sacred home. So that's some good, good stuff. But that is necessary stuff for us. Because again, it tells us that God has put limits on evil. In a macro sense, though it may not always look that way. And in a micro sense, though, it always doesn't feel that way. Think about your own temptations. Here's where I end. Think about your own temptations and the struggles that you face. Do you know, Christian, that God has put limits on them? In his love, he has put limits on evil and its temptation against us. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful who will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. That is good news. Temptation is not like a flood. It's not like a deluge that overwhelms and consumes. God has opened up the mouth of the earth and consumed it and put limits on temptation. This is good news. God will not let us be tempted beyond that which we are able to bear. I know it doesn't always feel that way, but truth is not about your feelings. Truth is about God's word. With the temptation, we'll provide the way of escape also. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit so that we may be able to endure it. James came along and gave us great instruction for living. I love how practical James is. James says... Submit, therefore, to God. Okay, that's obedience language. Submit to God, obey God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. This is like easy stuff. Obey God, resist the devil. And he'll flee from you. It's not a big mystery. It's not some esoteric spiritual thing. It's not like, oh, no, warfare. It's like, obey God, resist the devil, he'll flee. Why? He's on a leash. He's not ultimate. He doesn't have ultimate power. God has put limitations and time frame and parameters on the devil and evil. So here's advice for living for me and for you. Obey God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. The problem is, is that we often fail to obey God and we give in to the devil. Right? Think about areas of our own lives where we're refusing to obey God and we're giving in to the devil. You know, I got to tell you because I love you, the opposite truth is true. If you resist him and he'll flee from you, then it's true that if you give in to him, he'll endeavor to cling to you. Ephesians chapter four says, don't give the devil an opportunity. The word in the Greek is tapos. It means place space in our lives. This is wonderful news. Submit to God, obey God, resist the devil. He will flee from you. That's a promise of scripture. Stand on it, stand firm, keep resisting. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Ah, it's like water. You know, because it can be hard in the midst of this life and temptation and oppression and spiritual warfare. So draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. There's a promise, stand on it, cling to it, live into it. And then I love the way James just slaps us at the end. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. <laughs> I love James. He just says at the end of it all, stop touching stuff you shouldn't touch and get rid of the junk cluttering your heart. This is good advice for life. Peter comes along with a little more eloquence perhaps and says this. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, Peter knew what he was talking about. Peter, Peter, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Peter was sifted. And on that night, Peter denied the Lord three times. But Jesus said, but I've prayed for you. And after you have returned, strengthen your brother. He told him there, there will be a good work that is accomplished even though I'm allowing the enemy this opportunity. God is sovereign, the enemy isn't. 
I don't always understand it, but Satan had to ask permission. But, but Peter now has a degree of sobriety. Peter says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know what that means? That means Satan isn't playing games, so stop playing games with Satan. He's seeking to devour. We flirt with it, we play games with it, we skirt around it, we dabble in it. Peter's saying, listen, this is not a game. He's looking to devour. Jesus said he came to kill, steal, and destroy. Satan isn't playing games, he's playing for keeps. So don't play games with Satan. So what do we do? Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world, right? Resist him, firm in your faith in Jesus and know that you are not alone. You know, one of the main schemes of the enemy is to make you feel isolated and alone. Like nobody knows your pain. Nobody's ever been through what you've been through. Nobody knows how hard it is. Nobody understands this sort of temptation. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Peter comes along with great experience and says, we all know what you're going through and we're in it together. So stand firm in your faith. The child has overcome the dragon. And here's the promise of good. And Peter experiences this in his life. After you have suffered for a little while, a little bit of bad news there, you will suffer. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is what was seen by John in Revelation chapter 12. So that there's a loud voice in heaven in verse 10 saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have come for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, the cross of Jesus Christ and the word of their testimony, faith in Jesus and because they did not love their life even to death. They were living for Christ, not for themselves. In that We are more than conquerors. The child who has saved you has overcome the dragon who is doomed. This is good news. Lord, that you would help us to live into these glorious truths. Thank you for them, Lord. I'm I'm encouraged today in my own struggles, areas where I'm tempted, the areas where I'm tempted to be discouraged or feel that I'm alone or areas that I'm fooling around with darkness. Lord, in your love and through your word, you've you've shown us great and glorious things today. That Jesus, you are truly victorious. So Holy Spirit, make it real in our lives. Help us to stand firm where we need to stand firm. Help us to resist where we need to resist. Show us how to be sober where we need to be sober. Show us how to cling to the word of our testimony, faith in Jesus. Thank you for the power of the blood of Christ by which we are forgiven and saved. Teach us not to love our own lives, but to go the way of the cross and surrender to your will. For your word has shown us today that you're trustworthy, that you protect your people, that you carry the day, that you are coming to rule and reign. So we joyfully submit ourselves to you and ask that you'd work wonderfully in our lives for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen.